Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast, brought to you by Ceres. I'm Paul Ellis, your host for these programs about developments in this fast-growing industry. My guest today is Luma Sakaf, Executive Chairman of Ajal Sustainability Consulting. Sakaf has spent three decades at the forefront of Islamic finance sustainability, and entrepreneurship in the Middle East and North Africa, also known as the MENA region, as well as in Europe. And she is a regular advisor to the Dubai financial market. In today's program, we discuss the impacts of climate change on the MENA region and the sustainable finance trends that are developing there. But before we start, I want to say a few words about our sponsor. I'm thrilled to talk about the important work Ceres is doing. Ceres is a nonprofit organization working with the most influential capital market leaders to solve the world's greatest sustainability challenges. Through their powerful networks and global collaborations of investors, companies, and nonprofits, Series drives action and inspires equitable, market-based, and policy solutions throughout the economy. To learn more, go to series.org slash podcast. That's C-E-R-E-S dot org slash podcast. At Series, sustainability is the bottom line. Hello, Luma, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast. Hi, hi, Colin. Thank you very much for having me. So, Luma... We are on the eve of the COP27 summit. What is the current status of sustainability and climate change in the MENA countries? And if you would, please tell our listeners where the COP27 summit will take place. Sure. So, well, start, let's start with that. COP27 is going to be in Egypt, so uh, the north of Africa. Mm -hmm. uh, but also perhaps it's, it's worth... Uh, so just painting a picture of uh, of Mina yes. <laughs> uh, for, for, for this question. Uh, Mina straddles two, two continents, uh, Africa and, and Asia. Uh, it's uh, 472 million people, more or less. Uh, so quite, quite big and, and comparable to Europe. But of course, Europe is more homogenous than, than, than Mina. MENA has, on the one hand, some of the most or least uh, developed countries, but also, and so there's a lot of poverty, but there's also uh, quite uh, rich countries in, in MENA. So you have, uh, MENA is home to, to producers of one third of the global oil production, but also uh, one fifth of the global gas reserves. So you you can you can see the the contrast. You have fourteen of the world's most stressed water stressed countries in Mina, uh, and against oil producers. So it, it's really a very very uh, interesting um, uh, paradoxical, if you like, uh, uh, area. Uh, the the problems in Mina from a climate perspective, and when we're talking about the current status. Uh, you have extreme heat, you have uh, droughts, water stress, water scarcity, food security issues, rising sea levels. And also you have issues like oil exporting countries having uh, the, uh, needing to, to uh, decarbonize. So in so many ways, there's no shortage of uh, climate issues in, uh, in MENA. Uh, but also it, it is... It represents, in, in so many ways, the whole world. So 
Europe seems to have, for example, relatively similar types of problems. Vienna has all types of problems, you know. Um, and with that in mind, when you look again at, at climate, you will see that all of MENA region have uh, already submitted their NDCs. They have committed to a number of things, but the things that they have committed to also probably reflect all of those issues that we've discussed, these, these uh, different uh, points of view for all of those countries. So we have from net zero in the United Arab Emirates committing to net zero by 2050, but then you have Saudi, for example, and Bahrain committing to net zero by 2060. Then you have uh, other countries who can't commit to net zero. They can only commit to decreasing emissions. So you have, for example, Qatar committing to 25% reduction by 2030. Then you have countries like Jordan and Egypt who have who are considered the poorer countries. And so their commitments require a significant amount of, uh, of contributions. So Jordan needs uh, something like $6 billion to reduce around 30, 26%. Egypt requires $246 billion to reduce uh, emissions in three sectors. So it's, it's so diverse, but also it reflects, as I say, the different needs of every country. But the one big issue that we have today on the eve of COP27 is the financing needs for, for the MENA region. And again, it, it's a reflection of the whole world. We are talking about $600 billion for only MENA to achieve their NDCs. And if you add the SDGs as a whole, you're then talking about uh, something to the tune of $2 trillion. Uh, so we're talking about huge amounts. Now, of course, there's some developed uh, uh, fi world financing committed, but then we have all sorts of problems of, is it enough? It's not only for MENA, uh, is it in the form of grant loans, etc. what kind of financing it's going to cover, mitigation, adaptation. And so if, if, if we want to summarize all these problems today <laughs> with, with MENA, we could say that MENA reflects the status of the world today in the face of, of, climate, uh, of climate change, in the face of, of all of these issues. It's, it's grappling with the amount of financing now that they, they have made their commitments. They're grappling with the amounts of money that is needed. They are grappling with the volume of work that is needed to achieve all of these goals, the laws that need to be enacted, uh, all the policies uh, and strategies that need to be put in place, to improve the financial sector so that all of these financings can actually uh, happen. And on top of everything, we need to involve the private sector in, in what ways. You know, um, Luma, if I can interrupt for a second, uh, this sounds very much like what we are going through in the United States of America right now and what is happening in Europe and China and, as you said, every place else in the world. We are all struggling with these massive commitments that we need to make to transition our global economy away from uh, oil and gas requirements for energy purposes uh, over the next 20 or 30 years. So. How important are the COP27 and COP28 summits going to be 
not just for the MENA countries, but for the entire planet in terms of what gets accomplished at those summits over the next two years. And if you would let our listeners know where COP28 will be taking place as well. Sure. So, so again, another interesting uh, thing that's happening is that COP27 and COP28, the, the two one after the other, is happening in MENA, and COP28 is happening in in Dubai, in the in the United Arab Emirates, uh, and that in itself actually uh, again puts interesting perspectives on on what is what we're hoping or or the importance of of what how how mina how the mina region is going to to take take these um, uh, cops uh, i think from a global perspective uh, and of course uh, cop is for everybody is not for the hosting countries only however the hosting countries do have uh, do kind of uh, influence if you like some of the the discussions based on their perspectives so we talked about egypt developing country uh, per capita 3800 uh, dollars per annum so really very very poor country and we know that they, they require all this 246 billion dollars by 2030 just egypt uh, so their focus and they have already announced it is going to be on the on sources of funding so that is going to be one of the hottest topics i would say in mina in in cop 27 uh, and engaging with the developed uh, the developed world it's also going to be i think about engaging the private sector nobody can come up with these amounts in this space of time it's just impossible so the, the the private sector needs to be involved and i think that's the focus for for uh, cop 28 which is the uae we're talking about an oil producing country we're talking about a more uh, more a richer country per capita thirty-six thousand dollars uh, and uh three percent of the world gas reserves i think the focus of the UAE is going to be on emissions, on reducing emissions. They've already committed to net zero by 2050, and they are already trying to uh, be a leader in, in sustainability, in leading MENA and, and to take a bigger global role in, in leadership. So they are going to try and show the world, I guess, uh, what they have been doing already in, in that to achieve that goal uh, a lot of things have already happened uh, around that so again it's going to be focused on improving targets innovation and so on uh, from a pure mina perspective what is what is what are the cops for mina within the region i i uh, i think the importance is going to be to bring uh, about the importance of the private sector and the need for them to to think in two ways the first one is that they are also parties to the reduction whether i mean the the commitments that the governments make are not for the government to implement are for everybody to implement we all need to work together so that's one level and the second level i'm hoping that there will be an understanding that this is also an opportunity. When we talk about this amount of money, two, $2 trillion dollars between now and 2030, that is uh, an opportunity for the private sector to do something, hopefully. Uh, and the hope is that there will be also one million jobs created, which MENA desperately needs. So we're hoping that that these are the kind of things that will take take uh, take the importance and uh, take the attention of people in in these uh, in in COP twenty seven and COP twenty. 
Yes, you know, the, as you know, the recently passed, just this past week, in fact, Tax Relief Act through the U.S. Congress uh, is allocating over $400 billion of assets going forward to address these same issues here in the United States. And so it's, it's obviously a, and certainly not just a regional problem anywhere to raise that kind of money, and especially when we have so much need, uh, not just um, everywhere, but uh, in the global south. Uh, as as well, uh, because um, many of the countries, as you know, in that in the global south, are not even participating in the type of economic infrastructure that is available, for example, to at least some of the MENA countries, and uh, that that's a a very difficult area to to focus on, right? So uh, we need much more coordination, much more collaboration around that. And I think one one thing to say here is that I think an important thing to 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 keep in mind is that literally the whole world is suffering from the same problems. Yes. But also the whole world needs all these trillions of dollars within the same period of time, and so we are all kind of competing for the same for the same money and for the same attention, and that has got to be something very important to to keep in mind with all of these discussions. Good. Well, thank you very much for bringing that up. You're absolutely right. And tell us from your perspective, what sustainable finance trends are developing in MENA countries in 2022 and beyond? Uh, in terms of, of uh, I mean, there, there are a couple of, uh, of, of levels, if you like, to, to sure. talk about. Please. There is the regulatory issues and and generally capital markets development and on that i have to to say that there's very little happening whether we 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 like it or not it is uh, it is it's a reality uh, there has been some some movements from the stock exchanges on putting together for example laws requiring uh, mandatory uh, mandatory disclosure but even that it's only in a in a few countries uae and egypt uh, qatar is talking about uh, that uh, but apart from that from the regulatory side there is very little what has been more active i would say uh, uh, is the the actual products that are taking place in the market so there are more um products like loans, uh, loans, bonds, and so on. We've seen a lot of issuances and a lot of borrowings in the past uh, in the past uh, couple of years, specifically. Uh, sovereign, real estate, aviation, different sectors and different borrowers. But I think the most important ones have been the sovereign, each one of them, and all the financial institutions. Uh, because obviously with financial institutions, it, by definition, it means it is going for even more more green projects and that has been good um, in terms of other trends as i said loans bonds we have seen a lot of sukuk especially in the gcc uh, sharia compliant uh, bonds uh, taking place uh, and we are starting to see also some retail products for example uh, hsbc offering green home mortgages uh, we're seeing some banks, uh, Standard Chartered, mobilizing $300 billion for, for MENA and, and Asia. 
for SMEs. We've seen interesting developments like um, the European uh, Reconstruction and Development Bank, for example, coordinating with Jordan, uh, lending to banks for on lending to small businesses um, for green and climate and climate. But I would say, generally speaking, that's that's really the, the gist of what we're seeing. Uh, at this stage, in terms of uh, of movement on the on the smaller finance, uh, sustainable finance uh, sphere. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, I, I have conversations with a number of um, U.S. asset management companies on a regular basis that believe the Middle East is a natural home for sustainable finance because of Islamic finance and the way it is structured. So. You're taught, you mentioned Sharia compliance and Sukuk bond issuance. Um, a number of asset managers here in the U.S. that I know and work with believe that that is a reason to be developing more business for their firms in the MENA countries. Is that true? And if it is, can you explain that to our listeners? Sure. Uh, look, I think, uh, just step in mind for one second. I mean, uh, MENA has conventional and Islamic finance. So both both are prevalent in MENA and Islamic finance is just one type of financing. But for obvious reasons, it, it's it's more important, let's say, in, in, in MENA. Uh, yes, uh, Islamic finance is a segment of uh, ethical financing, values-based uh, investments, basically investments that are looking for more than just monetary returns. We are looking for for a, a specific way of being and it, it, that is reflected in the way we invest. And so, um, it, 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 I mean, people are more, more aware, if you like, of the more typical, what we call negative screening lists of Sharia. Uh, so you don't invest in things like uh, weapons, uh, pornography, alcohol. So, but, but the list that is typical for Sharia is not... Uh, that uncommon in sustainable financing, they are, they, it is relatively similar. Uh, but also, it's not just that that list, that typical list. Sharia as a as a religion also uh, embeds it, it's embedded in it concepts like long long term good of humanity, eradicating poverty, hunger. All those concepts are within the the core tenets of Sharia. So it is definitely considered uh, within the sustainable finance. Uh, and so I would say that the region, Mina, is primed for sustainable finance because of that. Now, just one thing to, to add about that is that um, when you add sustainable finance uh, to a Sharia compliant structure or vice versa, you're actually gaining also a little bit more. Uh, so from an Islamic finance perspective, when you are structuring uh, uh, financing, the money is transferred uh, by a Sharia compliant way, but then the debtor can can use the money in any form it wishes, provided it stays away from that, what we call the negative list. In sustainable finance, in addition to that, you are actively being required to do something sustainable with the money. So in a way, you can look at, at Sharia compliance as uh, a negative screening. And then with sustainability, it's a negative screening plus. So you're adding something. Uh, but also the, the, in, both, in both types of financing, the underlying credit of the debtor, of the obligor, uh, is 
the same credit risk as in a normal bond. Um, it doesn't matter that it is Sharia structured or it has a, a sustainable finance component. And that's why if you look at the MENA region, actually, if you look at the GCC specifically, according to Fitch, 80% of, of sustainable bonds that have been issued uh, in the last couple of years have been uh, on Sharia. So they were uh, sustainable uh, Islamic bonds for that reason, because you're able then to, to uh, attract all types of investors, ethical, uh, so it's Sharia compliance uh, and sustainable, but also normal, normal uh, investors who are looking for this type of credit because nothing really changes in the underlying uh, credit. That's fascinating. And I, I would like to continue our conversation about this in the future. But for the moment, in today's program, we're going to shift gears a little bit. And I want to ask you uh, about being the founder and the creative director of the ethical luxury women's wear brand by Luma. Can you give us a couple of examples of women's wear you design and tell us why you decided to launch a fashion business? Uh, so, so Bailuba was uh, was established in 2017. It's uh, it's uh, a result of a personal personal need, if you like, uh, of not just me as a professional woman, but a lot of of, uh, of women in in this category um, who did not did not find the appropriate wear. For, for you know, for professional women generally, it's really uh, a difficult category to to find in the market. Uh, but obviously, because of the way I think, uh, because of the way I, I I would like to do things, it had to be uh, an ethical brand basically. And so our focus is very much on what we use in terms of materials. We use natural natural fabrics uh, inside and outside, which is really important. Uh, it's, uh, we, we also are very conscious of our carbon footprint. So we, we source from, we, we produce in Spain and we source from uh, nearby Italy um, as, a, as a closed source, but we also produce in small family-owned uh, atelier in Spain. We, we know the people who produce for us. We know them by face and name. Uh, we, we, you know, we, we've developed very good relationships with the community. Our team is 100% women. We have all sorts of uh, flexible uh, working uh, environment as possible. Some work completely from home, some work uh, part-time, some work, you know, different shifts. And, you know, we, we've, we've enabled, we've enabled many amazing women uh, to, to do something hopefully amazing. Uh, and today we sell in, in Europe and in the Middle East. And uh, I'm really proud of what we have been able to, to achieve so far. Well, congratulations. I think that's a wonderful way to diversify <laughs> yourself as an investor and a creator of business opportunities for yourself. So uh, please, I can keep doing that. And I hope it, uh, it's very, very successful. Now, Lumo, if you would tell our listeners how they can contact you about the topics and the trends that we've discussed in today's program online, I would appreciate it. Uh, sure. Uh, the website, uh, the easiest way is the website. It's Agile Consulting, 
www.ecofinancedot.com. Uh, uh, and uh, yeah, there is an ability to contact me via the website. That's the easiest way, I guess. Okay. Well, thanks again to Luma Sakoff, Executive Chairman of Agile Sustainability Consultant, and to our sponsor, the Series Accelerator for Sustainable Capital Markets. The Series Accelerator is a center of excellence within Series that aims to transform the practices and policies that govern capital markets to reduce the worst financial impacts of the climate crisis. For more information, go to series.org slash accelerator. And to our listeners, join us again next week for another episode. I'm Paul Ellis, and this is the Sustainable Finance Podcast. Music